Welcome to the 181st installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. When Land Stewardship Project members Martin and Loretta Jouse began dairy farming in West Central Minnesota in 1980, they assumed that they would never utilize their expertise in wildlife management again. Both have college degrees related to wildlife conservation and natural resources, and they even worked on a refuge for a time. Like many people, the Jouses felt that profitable farming and a healthy ecosystem did not go together. However, over the years, they've proven that assumption dead wrong. By utilizing managed rotational grazing, diverse crop rotations, and other innovative production systems, the Jouses have developed a successful farming operation that blends profitable food production with a healthy working ecosystem. This system is building soil health literally from the ground up, which dramatically reduces the amount of soil and other runoff that makes it into local waterways. And their farm is certified organic, which means they can sell their milk for a premium through the Organic Valley Cooperative. Being organic also means the joust land is home to many beneficial insects, including pollinators. But the Jouses are also putting their academic and professional natural resources backgrounds to good use on areas of the farm that at first blush may not appear connected to food production. They've restored an 11-acre wetland, established shelter belts around their pastures, and even put in a pond for amphibians. They've also mounted 100 bluebird boxes on their fence posts, planted native plant species, and protected odd corners that provide food and habitat for various wildlife species. The result is that the Joust Farm is literally an ecological island in the midst of a corn-soybean desert. The first thing one notices upon arriving at their farm is all the birds, everything from bobolinks and dick thistles to orioles and bluebirds. In fact, over 200 species have been documented here. During the spring and fall, waterfowl stop by on their migrations. They've even had long-eared owls nest on the farm. But these habitat restoration efforts aren't as isolated from the rest of the working farm as one might suspect. Perhaps what's most exciting about the Joust Farm is how Loretta and Martin have blended the tame and the wild on these 410 acres. Such a seamless mixing has created mutual benefits for the land and the agricultural enterprise. For example, Loretta likes to tell the story of how building soil health made it so their small grains were able to fend off a massive swarming of grasshoppers one summer. Their neighbors weren't so lucky. The blending of the agricultural and ecological on the Joust Farm was on full display during a recent field day sponsored by Audubon, Minnesota, Organic Valley, and Birds and Beans Coffee Company. Wildlife enthusiasts gathered in mid-June to check out what the Jousts have done to make this piece of land an example of working lands conservation at its best, and to even add a few birds to their life lists. Afterwards, people gathered next to one of the Jousts' ponds for an open-air meal of locally sourced food and a discussion about why this kind of agriculture is important and how the public can support it. After the meal, I chatted with a few of the participants in the field day. First, I talked to Tom Will, a bird ecologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Will described why the presence of farms like the Jouse operation are so important to the life cycle of migrating grassland songbirds, which are increasingly threatened by land use changes here and in Central and South America. Well, two of the birds that we saw today, the bobolink and the dick thistle, are both species that migrate quite a long way and spend the winter in South America. Uh, bobolink, in fact, 
hangs out in Venezuela and, and Colombia in northern South America for about uh, six to eight weeks and then goes further south and ends up in in, the, in northern Argentina, where it spends the winter. But what's really uh, seems to be the case in a lot of these long-distance migratory birds is that they complete not just the back and forth between two between a wintering area and a breeding area, but they're, that, that's part of their full annual cycle. And it's really important uh, what happens to them not only at either end of that cycle where they're breeding or wintering, but also in between as well. And every, every place they visit contributes to their well-being and health. And so it's critical, for example, for these birds to find a gem of a place like like this farm in Given, Minnesota, where they, I think, can respond to um, an organic farming practice, a healthy farming practice, lots of energy, lots of insects to feed their young, and that fuels their ability to make that long-distance journey all the way back to South America and hopefully find a similar environment there where they'll encounter a healthy environment with relatively free of pesticides and things that would make it more difficult for them to return to us the next year. Next, I talked to Katie Fallon, an author and co-founder of the Avian Conservation Center of Appalachia, about how practices such as growing coffee in the shade thousands of miles south of Minnesota are key to making sure birds return to this region every spring. So coffee was originally grown in the old world, in Ethiopia, and it came to the new world in the 1700s, um, the tropics, Central America and South America, where it was grown primarily in the shade of existing forest. And then about 40 years ago, 40 to 50 years ago, as the demand for coffee increased, coffee could be produced more quickly if it was grown in the full sun. So a lot of these forests were cleared and coffee plantations without any shade sprung up in the tropics. This was not good for a variety of reasons. It produced coffee quickly, so the farmers could turn a profit more quickly than growing coffee in the shade. But the farmers also had to deal with um, sometimes dangerous pesticides, fertilizers, um, erosion, soil erosion, water pollution, um, and other problems that you have with when you have a monoculture and not not much holding the soil in place. So in the 1990s, folks started to uh, look at the way coffee was being grown in the tropics and tried to find uh, maybe a better way to preserve some of the habitat or to restore some of the habitat that had been lost for some of our neotropical migratory songbirds in addition to some of the tropical resident songbirds and, of course, uh, the health of the farmers who were picking the coffee beans. The Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center began to certify coffee, so- coffee farms as bird-friendly. And the bird-friendly criteria is very strict. have to be certain species of trees that shade the coffee plants. Um, there can't be many invasive species. A lot of the plants have to be native. These are the kind of trees and plants that the birds we think of as our migratory birds enjoy spending time in and foraging when they're in the tropics. Birds like the Baltimore Oriole, which we had here earlier on the farm, and we heard singing a few minutes ago. Um, other birds that might use coffee farms would be um, a wood thrush, which we don't, I don't think we have on this farm, but we have in Minnesota. Um, the cerulean warblers, golden-winged warblers, yellow warblers, chestnut-sided warblers, scarlet tanagers, scissor-tailed flycatchers, Vireos, the list can go on and on of our birds that winter 
in, in the shade-grown coffee farms. I also chatted with Kristen Hall, the conservation manager for Audubon, Minnesota, about why she originally was hesitant to go birding on the Joust Farm and the connections between local, sustainable food and the support of Midwestern bird habitat. Kristen, you had kind of learned about this farm a couple years ago when you came for a bird survey, and it sounded like you really had your eyes opened. I don't know what your... You mentioned you grew up on a farm, but I don't know what your thinking was if whether working farmland could be a home for birds, and if maybe this changed a little bit for you when you came out here, and describe a little bit what you saw and kind of what maybe how that opened some eyes for you. I did grow up on a farm, and it was a little farmette. It was pretty diverse, and so I was lucky to be surrounded by a lot of awesome birds and awesome wildlife and didn't really even think twice about it not being the normal. But in my work with Audubon, Minnesota, um, I knew we were doing a, our breeding bird atlas at the time, and lots of folks didn't want to cover the blocks that were in the agricultural areas because they just weren't birdy. And that means that they just weren't going to see as many species. They wanted to go to the northern forest or the place where you can find scads of warblers and things like that. And so when Tom came to me with this opportunity, I thought, well, that'll be interesting. Like, I really haven't been birding in agricultural Minnesota. And I didn't really have any expectations, but I also didn't really think it was going to be anything spectacular. And I swear to you, driving up here, you just see the difference. It really is um, in the landscape, not only with the birds suddenly singing and moving around, but the grasses, the fence lines, the birdhouses. It's just a really stark difference within the landscape. And I think that those little oases around in the agricultural matrix of our state are really important. And I think meeting Martin and Loretta changed my philosophy as to what farming should be. Not necessarily what I expected that it was, but I just feel like it's been a gift to be introduced to them. Do you have any thoughts, uh, that now that you've become familiar with what they're doing here and being out here and talking to some other folks about what we could do to promote more of this type of agriculture? I think as un sexy as it might be, I think paying attention to the farm bill, paying attention to some of our agricultural regulations that are taking place, it's usually the last issue that's talked about in a political session, and some things are just kind of thrown in at the last minute, but it really is an important issue that has lasting effects on the landscape. Paying attention to those issues or paying attention to folks that do pay attention to those issues and taking part in that makes a big difference. I also think that as a consumer, we eat every day and we make those choices at the grocery store at our farmers markets wherever we are we're able to drive how our food is produced and i think it's an important job as a consumer to make sure that we think about that before we cook dinner or something along those lines we had a local foods meal here and it was locally sourced and we had the owner of the restaurant from Hutchinson here, get up and and her sister, who raised uh, the produce that was served here, talked passionately about how important this was to them to be able to serve this food to people who care about the environment and care about the community. And some people might go, well, this is nice. We had food. I mean, most meetings, food is the afterthought or snacks. It's a bunch of cookies or whatever. This, I, I got the, I just realized while we were sitting here, boy, that was a really key part of it. And one of the things she talked about, and I think it's, it's kind of the overriding thing we have to pay attention to here, was the economic benefit to what they were 
doing in their community by sourcing locally and supporting local farms. So the meal that was actually the highlight of today, aside from being here on the farm, was provided by Tiffany from Zellas in Hutchinson, Minnesota, and the produce was locally sourced from Rebel Soils, which is a well, small organic vegetable farm. Um, their restaurant really focuses on local and is a real important part of the community. Tiffany had mentioned that bringing her business to Hutchinson and supporting her sister's four-acre vegetable organic vegetable farm is really a piece of that community, and she was thrilled to bring that piece of the community to this larger community. But I do think that um, her message resonated so well, and it comes back to our choice as consumers. When we understand where our food comes from and the fact that it was grown right down the road and is grown to specifics that a small restaurant wants to cater to people who are asking for it, it provides jobs in a community. It provides a sense of community. I think the sharing of a meal, whether you're at a restaurant or at a farm pond, really brings that community together. And as a whole, I think making that investment in Hutchinson, figuring out where those local ingredients are, working with the local farmers, supporting folks like Loretta and Martin, is really getting yourself a home in a place where you're just going to share a meal. And um, I think that their effort in bringing that all together has not only provided jobs, but it's also provided a sense of community for the whole town of Hutchinson to kind of gather around and, and work together to create more of. Finally, Loretta Joust told me her grasshopper story, a prime example of how operating a farm as a natural habitat pays off in more ways than one. You guys, you have, you and Martin have wildlife biology backgrounds, and I always remember talking to you about this in the past. You felt that when you came to the farm, well, that's, I won't be using that degree anymore, but you guys have found a way to use it. You've made a real, just a, a real ecological oasis here. But one of the things you had talked about is, and I've heard this story before, but it's a great story about the year that the grasshoppers came. I was wondering if you could talk about that, because that really gets at the root of, and you, you thought you had it answered at first, but it turned out you were wrong. It was even more complex and nuanced than you thought. Um, yeah, my favorite story from the farm, the, the grasshopper story. Um, 1989, in a year of severe drought, um, one of four in a row, actually, about the time the small grain was heading out, um, hordes of grasshoppers invaded. Um, you'd be walking in the house and they'd be sticking to you or coming through the, the windows and the door frames in our old 1915 house. And um, they ended up eating all the heads off of the the plants we nobody was quite sure what to do with that um you know but the sprayers came out and they were working on that and we didn't even bother to go back and check our field in a remote corner of the farm um, until we realized oh well that stubble that we're seeing in the other fields we can use that for straw so we went back there um and uh and found our field um you know kind of ragged around the edges but um a, a harvestable crop in the majority of the field and we were just dumbfounded had no idea why that was when right across the buffer strip was was a field um, that was pretty much decimated. 
Well, being good ecologists, we just figured, well, it's it's the biodiversity. We know that that builds strength and resiliency in systems and figured, well, there must have been something, you know, across into the wetland that they liked better and they moved over there. Well, it was five years later before we found the solution to that when um, someone was telling us um, that uh, because of the way we farm and the focus on organic farms, which is on the health of the soil, um, because of the soil on the farm, there was a higher sugar content inside those plants. And what happened was as the grasshoppers started eating on them, that sugar became metabolized and turned to alcohol, which proved fatal um, or at least discouraging for a lot of the grasshoppers, which was responsible for the field. Um, it was definitely an epiphany for us. I think we were farming, making the, the management decisions on the farm um, because we felt it was the right thing to do without really understanding the full ramifications and potential of, of what we were doing. What the grasshopper story taught us was that um, we can run the farm and that we should run the farm with respect for the, the principles that are operating the natural systems um, and and that uh, in the end it will pay off in, in big ways, not only in terms of success of the farm, but in terms of all the other living things that um, we share the farm with. So you went to school at the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, and that's kind of the heart of Aldo Leopold country. So he's really talked about a lot. And I really see all the times I've been to your farm, this is the land ethic at work. It really is. So because you went, you were from Wisconsin and you were studying natural resources, you kind of had to study Leopold. But it sounds like maybe you didn't at first quite get it. And it really took you to come here to the farm, ironically, to get what he was talking about with some of the stuff, that the land ethic and the being part of a community and, and, and that kind of thing. As a wildlife major at UW Stevens Point, um, I, I wanted to learn all about wildlife, and I couldn't wait to get out in the field and do some work. And oh, but then you had to take soils, and you had to take forestry, and of course there was ornithology and ichthyology and other ologies, and oh, what else did we have to take? I don't know, ecology and environmental stuff, which was all good. But um, I thought, oh well, you know, I didn't find soils that exciting. Till we come to the farm. And uh, and we're shifting over, shifting our philosophy, which we didn't know what organic was at the time, but we're moving that direction. And uh, and I understand then for organic farming, the soil is where everything starts. And managing, Brian, I think you've termed the coin subterranean wildlife. I was managing subterranean wildlife now. Um, and and you see, like with the grasshopper story, you understand how you manage the soil is a Affecting every other living thing around and how you manage everything on the farm is affecting everything because everything is connected. Um, so this concept um, in reading Elder Leopold's Sand County Almanac of the art of intelligent tinkering where the first precaution of intelligent tinkering is, is to save every cog and wheel. Um, and so well, we're implementing these conservation efforts here and not always understanding what the outcome will be. It's like I referred to before as it's it's faith farming. You just you know that when you're supporting those natural systems on the farm and working to strengthen them, even though it's way too complex for me to understand and uh, I think just in general um, you know, we're still doing a lot of research trying to figure that out. We just know it's an important thing to do and it's, it's the path that we want to be on for our farm.
Stewardship Project's work to promote farming that develops and supports healthy ecosystems, see www.landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org, or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Morgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members, who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.